This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. For anyone who's new to the show, this podcast has been going on for a few years now. My brother and I have taken over the show not too long ago, and in the era of COVID, we've shifted to all things COVID-related. Prior to COVID, it was more of a rapid fire, four articles in 30 minutes, but we've shifted gears and we're also now interviewing the principal investigators for some very exciting trials. And today, I have Dr. Donnie Arnold from McMaster University. Dr. Arnold is an associate professor. Before he was an associate professor, he was an internal medicine resident and then a HEME fellow and then also did a fellowship with Canadian Blood Services. Uh, Dr. Arnold, happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. All right. So help me understand this. I've seen a few other hematologists that have now become really interested in COVID-19. And I'd love to hear the story about how did you come uh, to being the PI of this really exciting study? Yeah, I mean, it's true that everything in everyone's life changed 10 weeks ago or whatever it is now. And certain opportunities seem to have come almost out of nowhere. It became very evident early on that there was a new type of treatment that was being explored around the world in China and then quickly in the, in the U.S. around convalescent plasma. And that's what I do. I work in transfusion medicine. I'm a clinical trialist with a large research group which is the McMaster Center for Transfusion Research. And so it just made logical sense that when that was happening, and I heard that things were starting to move in Canada towards this area, that uh, I jumped at the opportunity to get involved in this big trial. Yeah, terrific. And that, that certainly makes sense to me. So clearly, you know, you have a lot of experience with trials. You have a lot of experience with blood products. Tell me more about your experience with convalescent plasma and what excites you about this potential treatment strategy for people with COVID-19. Um, the concept certainly is not new. So, I mean, when I heard about this happening in COVID, it did ring some bells with me. I mean, this is a concept that's been around for a very long time in other infectious diseases and pandemics, even as early as the Spanish flu 100 years ago, and more recently with other outbreaks like SARS and MERS, H1N1, influenza, people have tried to use convalescent plasma, that is plasma from people who have recovered from the infection that contains antibodies against that particular infection, and then use it in the setting where someone else is potentially acutely ill with that disease or infection, and the kind of active ingredients in that plasma will now be able to neutralize the virus or the infection that's currently ongoing. So not a new concept. In fact, it's pretty crude if you think about it. This is just kind of the natural body's response to any infection. You're taking a big, huge sample of plasma out of someone who's doing that themselves and using it as, as a therapeutic for someone else. Yeah, and it's great that there is a mechanism to support why it might work, and I sure hope it does. We're seeing a lot of treatments where I don't really see the potential mechanism, so it's nice that this one has a bit more solid footing. So I think, you know, myself and other listeners have seen some of the impressive results from small case series in China, particularly published in, in JAMA, of course, case series are just that. So where are we at right now in terms of the body of evidence uh, for this potential treatment? Right. So you're right that 
the data that we have right now for COVID is very small. There are a few exciting case series, and by exciting, I mean positive. These were numbers that, you know, are about five or 10 patients in total. Then there were a few others that have come out recently too, equally small with negative results, saying that, you know, if you give plasma later on in the illness, so at a time of critical illness, when patients are already intubated or further along in their disease, there was no effect of plasma. Again, sample sizes of five or six patients. So we have that. We have a fair bit of experience, though, even outside of clinical trials from China and more recently from the U.S., where several thousands of patients have actually received this product. And, you know, the good news and bad news about that story is good news is there's experience with it and the safety data looks pretty good. So there's no big signals to say that this is a dangerous product or causing significant harm. The bad news is it hasn't been delivered in a comparative setting where we can say, here's one group that got plasma, here's a group that didn't, and see if there was any difference in effect. We just don't have that information yet, but we have some reassuring safety information and we have glimmers of effects here and there from small case series. Okay, good to know. And I feel that that's been a somewhat similar theme with other potential treatment strategies where, you know, you just wish those thousand some odd people entered a trial and we'd have so much more information. So I want to talk a bit more about the safety standpoint. You know, myself as as a general internist and among the patients I've seen in hospital with COVID-19, I, I realize they're they're fragile. This is a delicate scenario. And one thing I wonder and maybe a little bit worry about is whether or not plasma, this convalescent plasma, could it actually worsen things? Could it cause heart failure? Of course, there's other transfusion-associated complications, but that's one thing that, that I've wondered about. Has there been much data on that in the available data for convalescent plasma? Yeah, so a great point to raise, and in, especially in this population, because they are fragile, as you say, and some of them may be on the verge of potentially getting worse. And it's those patients where you worry most about volume and shifts and things like that. And to give them a a fairly large bolus of plasma could be, you know, dangerous at times. I would say the two major risks of plasma that we are concerned about in the trial are transfusion-associated circulatory overload, which is essentially heart failure as a result of too much volume, or transfusion-related acute lung injury. Trolley, as that what I'm referring to, is a rare complication of blood products, including plasma. But in this population, there's a natural history to this disease where they may develop acute lung injury anyways. And so if we're giving plasma and then they develop acute lung injury, was that from the plasma or was that from the natural history of their illness? That'll be something really important for us to tease out at the end of the day. Um, And we're doing that very carefully by monitoring all of these reactions and vital signs, for example, right after the transfusion in close proximity. But at the end of the day, the data that we've seen come out of, let's say, uncontrolled trials has been very reassuring. There has not been an over-representation of TACO or trolley in the experience that's come out to date. And so that's been a, a good thing. Yes, that, that certainly is a, is a good thing. And, you know, when I first heard about the study that you're leading, I, I sort of felt like, all right, 
I want Mount Sinai on board. And it's terrific. I have, you know, Dr. Nadine Shahada. It's been terrific working with her. And, and it's been nice being able to sort of lead things from the GIM standpoint. So for listeners who are, you know, tuning in right now, can you give them a snapshot about the trial? Who's included? Who's excluded? Uh, what are the outcomes? Um, so what we think is the sweet spot for plasma is patients who are sick enough to need hospitalization and even supplementary oxygen because of COVID-related respiratory illness, but not too sick so that they're already critically ill, intubated in the ICU. They're almost at that spot where they might get worse. They're looking like they might get worse, but they can use a boost in their immune response. So the inclusion criteria for the trial are patients who are admitted to hospital with COVID-19, who require supplementary oxygen, and you know who are willing and able to undergo the trial, give consent. The exclusions are people who have a history of, let's say, serious reactions to plasma, let's say an anaphylactic transfusion reaction, or someone who just simply will not accept plasma as a treatment, you know, or someone who's just about to be intubated or they're critically ill in the ICU, but then there's a plan in place to get them intubated, but they're, they're already kind of too far along. So it's almost that, that sweet spot that, that we're after for the purposes of this trial. Yeah, and I like that it's pretty simple and pragmatic. You know, in my mind, what I'm thinking about, does this patient have COVID? Yes. Uh, are they on oxygen? Yes. Have their symptoms been going on for a while, but not too long? So, you know, within the last 12 days, and then not too many exclusion criteria. So so I like that. It's, it's very clean and, and pragmatic. And then what's the primary outcome for the Conquer One study that you guys are interested in? Right. So again, pretty simple. It's intubation or death at 30 days. And most of the time we'll know from the time of their discharge whether or not we've got all that information. But some folks who will be discharged earlier than that will get a phone call at 30 days and say, what's the vital status at that point in time? So again, you're right. We're trying to keep it simple, simple inclusion, exclusion criteria, simple primary outcome. Yeah. And I like that it's also, you know, a hard clinical outcome, something that I care about as a clinician and obviously the patients care about too. So let's say a site wanted to come on board. How would they do that? And our listenership is sort of 40% Canadian, 40% US Americans. Can they join if they're listening to this? Right. So the philosophy behind this trial was really that this was a large collaborative effort across Canada when it first started. And it was a hero's effort to actually get this off the ground if you think about what we had to overcome. So first of all, get a group of people across the country who were engaged and qualified and expert at getting a protocol together that is simple, doable, but also will definitively answer the question. So that was one task. The next task is we've got two blood suppliers. We've got Canadian Blood Services and we've got Hema Quebec. They are both responsible for collecting the plasma, for identifying the donors producing it in such a way that meets all the specs and that can get into our blood banks, bringing them together so that we can have a common product for a trial. Another big hurdle, but we were able to overcome that. And then the third one is to get a large representation of sites so that really to maximize accessibility to the trial for all Canadians, let's start with Canada, but we'll get to the U.S. in a second, 
And there the philosophy was, let's get the academic centers because they're really good at recruiting and they're so experienced. But let's also get the community centers because these are people who may not otherwise have access to COVID trials and are often excluded perhaps from those opportunities. So we're making a deliberate effort, we made a deliberate effort to include the non-academic community hospitals as well. And really coast to coast, just about every province, every territory represented who have COVID in their communities has a hospital that will be on the trial. The other thing that happened very quickly is, so it's kind of a funny story, but it's a good one. We had an investigator on our safety committee from New York, Will Cornell. And when she caught wind of the protocol after we had our first safety committee meeting, she quietly said to the investigators, you know what, we really need to run this trial in New York City. So she bowed out of the safety committee and now is an investigator on the trial itself for three hospitals in New York City, which was the epicenter of the pandemic in, in New York. And so we're working very hard to get them up and running. It will be within the next few days that three hospitals in New York City are going to be enrolling patients. You know, we are so open-minded about this. If there are opportunities for others to get involved and that's possible, I'm all ears between you and me and your listeners. I'm even having some conversations with Brazil at the moment. Brazil is just in the midst of the high point of, of their pandemic. And if we can get them access to this trial or help them in, in some way that's timely, um, that would be that would be amazing. Yeah, that, that really would for sure. And I you know Brazil's um, in a pretty bad place right now when it comes to COVID-19. So, you know, the more active trials there, the better. And then how many sites are now sort of, you know, live and on board? And what's the target sample size that you guys are hoping to achieve? Right. So we've identified about 60 centers across Canada and the three in New York who are willing and ready to sign up. We're doing this kind of in stages, really based on the highest concentration of patients in hospitals as a priority. And so Quebec and Toronto and the GTA, those are the hardest hit right now with COVID. There are, as far as today, four open centers in Quebec and four, I believe, open centers in downtown Toronto or the, or the GTA. There have been two patients randomized on the trial already as of last week. And um, we are hoping to open another four or five centers a week for the next, you know, three to four weeks. And then, you know, see how things go. I mean, this will have, again, representation right across the country. We need more, there's room for more as well. I think to answer your second question is how many are we looking for? The sample size calculation that we did was 1,200 patients required to answer the question. They'd be randomized kind of two to one. So that means for every two patients that get plasma, one gets the standard of care. And that would allow us a sufficient sample to really compare those two groups. We are also very aware that event rates, in other words, how many patients are going to be intubated, how many patients are going to die, is a little bit of a moving target. And we don't have a good sense of what event rates are. We do now, right now, but these tend to evolve, especially during the course of a pandemic. So one thing that we've done is at the halfway mark, we've built in an a sample size recalculation based on what the event rate actually is. And if we need to up the number, then we'll have an opportunity to do that. 
Okay, that that makes sense. And I'll make sure that we, uh, in the show notes and on our website, we'll provide information for where people can go to find out more about the trial, and then also where people can go to find out about you know, potentially donating, you know, donating their blood and then, or really their plasma. Uh, it's interesting, uh, a colleague of mine who she, you know, got COVID-19, uh, recovered, is doing great. She went to donate her plasma and she was just sort of saying that apparently she has really good veins and you need to have good veins in order to, you know, get a good sample. And they said, oh, you know, like, we'd like you to come back. So it looks like she's going to be going every few weeks or so to donate. Um, so that's exciting. That's true. So what's really also unique about this trial is that there's really two aspects to it. There's the patient aspect who's going to get the treatment and there's the donor aspect who's going to provide that potentially effective therapy for other patients. And the the heartwarming thing about this whole thing is that there's been such an outpouring of support from COVID recovered patients who want to give back, want to pay it forward, so to speak. And and uh, donate their plasma for a cause like this that might be able to help others. Yeah, it, yeah, that is it's uh, it's a, it is a, a heartwarming story for sure. Now, of course, we'll include the link to it. Basics for who can potentially donate. I remember seeing maybe some age cutoffs, and also they had to be a certain number of weeks out from recovery. Yeah. So plasma donation is not anything special for this trial. That's something that happens on a regular basis, just about every day at certain collection centers managed by Canadian Blood Services or Quebec, And there are criteria for who can and cannot donate plasma just for their own health and, and safety of others. So those criteria are still in place. But to be a donor for the CONCOR trial or any convalescent plasma trial, there are a few other qualifications. And that is they would have had to have a positive COVID test in the past, in the recent past. And they would have to be at least in Canada, 28 days from the time their symptoms resolved. In Quebec, it's a little bit shorter, but that's just kind of nuances about the treatment. So a good two to four weeks in Canada, anyways, would be four weeks from the time of symptom resolution. The blood is also tested for the presence of antibodies. These are antibodies against COVID-19 virus. And in order for that unit to qualify, as a convalescent plasma unit, there has to be documentable or documented presence of antibodies too. So fairly simple criteria, but still, you know, a process for people to go through when they go to the blood center. For sure. Well, that's uh, it's terrific. And it's, you know, terrific what you and your team have done. Very, very exciting uh, randomized trial, that's for sure. And then to end off, I'm going to put you on the spot here. All right. So if, you know, you peer into your crystal ball, what do you estimate that the hazard ratio or, or odds ratio, probably hazard ratio you guys are calculating, what, what do you estimate it's going to be? And we can see how true this estimate was in the future. You're really putting me on the spot. And whenever I guess you, about you stuff... You can decline if you want. But. <laughs> whenever I guess about stuff like that, I'm wrong. I'm going to say I am optimistic that this will be a positive trial. But I can't even say that with any certainty. I think the only way for us to really know if this is important, if we should be investing in this, if we should be looking at how to make this available for people, is to do the trial right, do it in a way that you're going to actually get to an answer, do it in a way that's generalizable to patients across the country, 
and then um, definitively kind of say yes or no. And and we're on the path to doing that, which I, I think is really the, the right way to go about this. Yeah, I agree. All right, listeners, well, I'll make a prediction. I'm going to say a hazard ratio of uh, 0.8 two with that confidence intervals that exclude the one. So I, I, in my heart of hearts, I think it'll be a positive study, but uh, we need randomization, not my predictions. So anyway, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I know you must be super busy with a, a study this large. So thanks so much. Um, great having you on the show. And uh, definitely, you know, we look forward to seeing the results for your study. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and your listeners today. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.